Hello, and welcome to Talking and Chill, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Mimi Lewis in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hey, Tamar. Hi, Mimi. And Zahava Stadler is joining us from Toronto, I believe. Is that true, Zahava? Yep. New location, that- uh, new legal residency, new uh, new country. It's <laughs> very exciting. Do you feel... Uh, are you enjoying looking down on the rest of us? <laughs> well, um, I am working remotely for my American employer, which means that recently everyone around me, but not me, had the day off for, seriously, Queen Victoria's birthday. Um, <laughs> I saw so, that in my calendar, yeah. It's a whole new world up here. <laughs> that is amazing. Well, this month we're going to be talking about the Israeli movie, The Women's Balcony, or in Hebrew, Yismach Chatzani. And for our second segment, we're talking about when the non-Jewish media covers Jewish ritual life. Okay, so I am so excited to talk about The Women's Balcony with both of you. Zahava, if I remember correctly, you endorsed this film way back when, is that true? I think so, yeah. I watched this movie when it came out in theaters, at least in American theaters, um, and I was a huge fan then, and I'm pretty sure you're right, I did endorse it on the podcast. Awesome. So I think that I watched it um, largely on your recommendation, and I um, downloaded it onto my iPad and watched it on a plane, and that led to me being one of those embarrassing people on a plane who was having like way too much fun watching their (laughs) movie (laughs) Um, in close proximity to like a lot of strangers. I love this movie so much. So before we go any farther, we should say that The Women's Balcony was directed by Emil Ben Shimon and was written by Shlomit Nechama and it came out in 2016. Um, I... After I watched it, I shared on Facebook that I loved it because it was about fighting the patriarchy, Ashkenazi normativity, female friendship, male friendship, and nonviolent resistance. Um, But that is not really a useful synopsis of the plot. (laughs) So uh, in very brief, um, at the very beginning of the film, we're in a Sephardi shul for a bar mitzvah and the women are in the women's balcony and the balcony collapses. And the rest of the film is basically about the kind of core members of the community, which is almost all couples figuring out how to rebuild the synagogue. And when they um, are helped by a local rabbi, Rabbi David, um, he wants to help rebuild the synagogue but not the women's section and the women have to figure out uh if they want to do that uh or what they want to do to to prevent that so is that a fair synopsis yeah sounds good so i i have been thinking a lot like why did i love this movie so much why has it been something that i've been thinking about so much since I watched it a couple weeks ago. And I think the thing that sticks out to me the most about why this movie was so great is it was about people who are religious, but they are not interested in getting a lot more religious. And they, it's, it's ultimately about a community that's like trying to maintain the identity that they have had all along. And I I guess I just really identify with that. I feel like there's not that many stories about like women, religious women that aren't about them getting much more religious and that being somehow like a wonderful, meaningful thing for them. Um, or the opposite. Right. Or, or women leaving being religious, yeah. Right, exactly. But there aren't really movies or even stories about people who are, have like found the level of religious practice that is like meaningful to them and like maintaining it and fighting against people trying to move them in either direction. Um, and I don't know. I just like I loved it. I love that the it it's 
it's funny because this is a movie that takes place in Jerusalem. It's about families who are very active in their shul. Like it's about people who are like extremely invested in their Judaism, but they are not Haredi. And that is just like not a community that I see depicted very often. And I just felt like, I mean, not to be super cliche, but I just felt so seen by this movie. <laughs> Even though it's like most of the women that are like 25 years older than me and Sparty and live in Jerusalem and I don't have very much in common with them, but like I felt like, yes, thank you, finally, a movie about me. <laughs> also, I just want to say that it is quite literally a, a movie about women wanting to talk in shul, so it's like the, the most... <laughs> the most appropriate topic for us ever. Yeah, I am also a huge fan of this movie. Um, I would just say like, first things first, as a movie, like I think the acting in it is really good. Yes. Um, I think it's like really fun to look good. at, like the, the colors and textures are like bright and interesting and you feel like you're in a real place. Um, I think it's also really funny, despite yes. being about like a community in crisis, it's also in in spots really hilarious. Yes. Um, and so all of those things really just recommend it as a movie. I also really like um, a movie set in the religious Jewish world, any stripe of the religious Jewish world, that doesn't seem like it's taking upon itself the big burden of explaining itself to you. Yes. Like, you're just there. You are in their world. You don't, like, it's, it's not trying to, like, subtitle itself for your benefit. And I also really appreciate that. Um, it just takes this universe as a universe worth spending a movie's worth of time in. And I just thought that was great. Um, above and beyond all of the like actual themes of the movie, which I, I think are really great meat for us as well. Well, I'd love to talk a little bit about some of the actual themes of the movie. I read um, a forward interview, uh, sorry, a forward article that quotes an interview with the screenwriter, um, Shlomit Nechama, and she said that her goal with the film was to tell the story of moderate people who were forced to deal with growing religious extremism. Um, and first of all, like, what a great goal. Yes. <laughs> I think that that's like a, a, an amazing goal and, and to choose comedy as the way of, of telling that story is really... Um, I don't know, just like creative and brave. Um, but, you know, I think that there, I, I felt that there was also like, there was a theological component to this story, right? One of the main women who we follow is a woman named Etty, um, who, you know, um, whose grandson is having the bar mitzvah that where the um, women's balcony collapses. And, once this new rabbi, Rabbi David, comes in, uh, Rabbi David, um, he sort of indicates through his teaching that the reason the women's balcony collapsed was because of, I don't know, personal sin of some of the people in the community who needed to do some sort of repentance. So Etty's grandson feels responsible, um, I think because he hadn't memorized his Torah portion properly <laughs> and wasn't really ready to, to do this. Um, and she gives this great line about, um, about sort of that, like, God doesn't care about your specific needs. What God has done is like, give us all the tools and a mind to live our lives and solve our own problems. Um, which I thought also, like, in a comedy, this movie has put forward one, if not more, very profound theological viewpoints. Um, and I'm just curious, like, what other themes stood out for you guys or, or what, your, what your responses to those were? I mean, uh, another thing that's interesting to me is the rabbi, so the rabbi does put out this sort of... Um, this okay you need you need to do the the like cheshbo nefesh the like self-examination to think about why this might have happened and what you can do in terms of 
fixing your own self to bring about the the restoration of the community. And some people really buy it, right? Some of the women really buy it. And suddenly they take it upon themselves. He makes a big deal about um, about how the women in the community don't cover their hair and they should start covering their hair. Some of them really do. Um, and it's it's not just like the women versus the men in the beginning. There's there's a sense that some of these women are on board, but that that you know that sh- kind of sharp criticism needs to be paired with a certain respect for these women as having religious agency, right? So mm-hmm. some of them are on board for the theology, but not the style. Some of them are on board for the th- for neither, um, but everybody agrees that they deserve to be treated with more respect than they are. And I think like, and the fact that that's where the rift happens is really powerful to me because the fact is, this is a very small spoiler. One of the women who started covering her hair, even after all of the rift is healed and all is said and done is still covering her hair at the end. Meaning religious observance is not the bad guy here. Right. The rabbi who's trying to, to alter a community from without is the bad guy. But the religious observance that people might choose along the way, even if inspired by their interaction with him, is not the bad guy. And I appreciated that because I thought a less nuanced movie would have turned all forms of new religious uh, practice into part of the villainy of the movie. I love that the movie took it seriously, that they that they were observant. Like it wasn't trying to make it be like, secular people versus religious people like they were religious they were like the people who were like the backbones of this shul community but they were like they were at a stable religious kind of place and they weren't really interested in in changing place and i thought that was just like just like respectful of people that <laughs> they don't need to be constantly being pushed or pulled in different, in different directions um, about this stuff, which isn't to say that, yeah, like you said, like people's religious observance, of course, like changes throughout their life for all kinds of reasons, but it's really nice to see a movie where it isn't that it didn't, it wasn't demonizing religious observance. It was demonizing someone, some stranger coming in and telling them you should, you should suddenly do this thing. It was interesting that the way in which this rabbi sort of um, was able to exert influence was by, quote unquote, doing them a favor. Right. Right. So it Mm -hmm. starts with their their shul isn't functioning and they're in this makeshift space where there are fewer people passing by and they're having trouble putting together a minion in the morning. And this rabbi walks by They say, hey, rabbi, do you have any interest in helping us make a minion? He realizes he's only number five out of the necessary ten. And goes and brings a bunch of his students from the yeshiva across the way to make the minion. And he's like, he saves the day. And then he smooths the way with them, uh, for them with the municipality to get their building permits and get things going more quickly. He's done them such a great favor. And then he sort of gets this influence in a way that really mirrors the kind of benevolent sexism that he is espousing throughout the movie. It's like, your women are so holy, they know all this Torah, they don't have to learn Torah, and they're so precious like a Torah scroll that they should be all covered up. And they, right, so (laughs) this notion of like benevolent power exertion is like mirrored in both ways in the story in a way that I thought was really like neatly and beautifully done. I love that parallel. He is such a good villain. By the end, you like fully expect to see him like, twiddling his mustache (laughs) yeah well you know it is one thing that i appreciated about the film that he did not change his ways you know he he didn't change his ideas about women but he he remained pretty convinced that he had done the right thing for this community i think he is actually a great exemplar of the gap between pulpit rabbis and uh yeshiva rabbis hmm Yeah, say more about that. Yeah, because he is not a community rabbi. He's not the rabbi of a shul when it starts. He teaches in a yeshiva across from their community. He's an ivory tower rabbi. And there is 
a very big difference in the halachic disposition in like the way a rabbi approaches questions of Jewish law in an ivory tower yeshiva context and in a these are real people living real lives and I need to understand them and understand the place their questions are coming from before I try to answer them. And this is something that I think we see all the time at the very least in American Orthodoxy um, where some of the big names in the American Orthodox rabbinate are ivory tower rabbis. They Their whole job, let's say, is teaching in a rabbinical ordination program um, and are very divorced from what's going on on the ground in some communities. And this guy really exemplifies that. Because what happens is these women are trying to build a women's section. He's like, but if you look in the books, that's not the highest priority that one could possibly have for spending money on a shul. Um, and his reasoning is debatable anyway, but he's, he's very much the ivory tower rabbi thinking that that's the end of the story. And this is something that I see in the real world all the time. Can we also talk about the friendships in this movie? Because that was something that I loved so much about it. The men all hang out together and they have a like warm, affectionate friendship where they are they have they are really friends with each other which like this is like one of my bugaboos is that like american men are not taught to make friends and so like they don't like sports is basically the venue that men have to socialize with other men and like that's too bad because that's not not everybody's into sports but everybody does need friends and these, I was so happy to see like men being friends with each other and being like, it was appropriate friendship. One of the men, Sion, he has a little Hasidic boy who comes and like hangs out with him in the afternoons. And he is like, just kind of like a grandfathery figure to this kid. And it's just like a very affectionate friendship that is you know, there's like a little piece of plot kind of um, wrapped up in it in this in the movie. But I just thought, like, what a beautiful depiction of how, like, it it's possible to be friends with people who are really different. Like, he's not Hasidic, um, but he's doing a lovely job of, um, you know, hanging out at, with and caring for this little boy named, amazingly, Avram Yitzchak. Um, so I love that. I love the ma- the male friendship. I love that none of the men are like total doofuses. Like a lot of times in movies like this, like the women would be the heroes and the men would be like total idiots who cannot function by themselves at all. And that's not the case here. Like there is a point where the men, the women are like, we don't want to be around you men anymore. And in a lesser movie, like, the men would have to come crawling back to the women because they wouldn't be able to, like, handle their lives. And that's not the message here. Like, it's not like the men can't cook themselves dinner or, like, get clean clothes. It's just that, like, that, it, it, I don't know. I was so happy that the men were, like, real humans who weren't idiots. And the women are awesome. Like, they all have different personalities. They're all thoughtful. They care about each other. And they're busy and funny and I don't know the whole thing I was just like so I just wanted to hang out with all these people like I wanted to be friends with all of them like there wasn't anyone where you were like oh you're the worst like you like them and it's just so rare for that to happen in a movie for a depiction of friendship to be to feel so warm and real and to involve both women and men There's also a great depiction of mature marriage, I think. Hmm. Good one. Yeah. That like Etty and Sion, who are a married couple, who are also like arguably main characters. I mean, it's very much an ensemble piece, but they're probably the most prominent couple among the couples. And they're, you know, in their 60s and have been married for a long time and have grandchildren and have a lot of respect for each other and really love each other. And you can, you know, you can see it when they bicker and you can see it when they 
when they agree and you can see it when they miss each other and it's really very genuine and I feel like also a lot of times especially in comedies like you see buffoon husband or a couple who seems to just like not really like each other like on sitcoms you're always like why are these people married to each other they don't even Mm -hmm. seem to like each other the whole story is that they fight Um, and it's really great in that sense as well I feel like we're just sort of like one notedly embracing everything about this movie (laughs) but it is uh, it's hard for me to come up with something that I'm not a fan of I had a distraction. It's not a total. It doesn't. It does not take away from fully loving the film. Um, there was one plot line that just really distracted me, which was something that we actually haven't really mentioned yet. But at the bar mitzvah, there's the rab. There is a rabbi of this community, an original rabbi, and his wife, who's up in the um, women's section, and. I actually I don't remember. Does the wife get injured or she just like goes into shock and somehow winds up in a coma after the collapse? Um, and the rabbi, I felt it wasn't clear whether the rabbi was like totally with it at the bar mitzvah, but definitely after the bar mitzvah, he becomes like confused, delirious, um, can't really do his responsibilities as rabbi. And somehow by the end of the film, like that's all just sort of wrapped up and taken care of. And he shows up to the like reopening of the shul. Um, but I, I felt like, I don't know, there was just some like weird stuff with this rabbi and the way that they were like, I don't know. They they were all taking care of him, trying to take care of him while his wife was in the hospital. I felt like he needed to like see a neurologist, but <laughs> they didn't go into that. <laughs> that was my distraction. That's my one thing. I shared that distraction. I also was like, mm, I feel at, at a certain point I was like, I see what needs to happen for this movie to work out. And it doesn't seem super right. plausible to me. Um, Although I will say, I think the least plausible part of the movie is the rabbi's beard, which, (laughs) why could that guy not just grow a beard? What was going on on his face? It was not, (laughs) I mean, it's like, it looked like a shaitel on his chin. Just don't do that. Um, (laughs) um, But I felt like he... I I agree. I, I just felt like his the way that they dealt with what he what was going on with him was kind of bizarre um but i also i saw the concern of like basically and i mean i know this is something that you have kind of thought about a lot professionally mimi of like when someone is older and is starting to act more out of it there is like a sense of like how open do you want to be about the fact that that's happening and the problem is you can't really get help if you're not honest about it but there is something about that's embarrassing um about it both for the person and for their caretaker i think it can just be hard to kind of like come to terms with that situation right and the commute what needed to happen for the storyline was that this rabbi would come back so that they would have a way to tell rabbi david that they didn't need him but that's not really how things happen in real life right right but there's also a question of are are people going to find in themselves the personal fortitude to not need him regardless right and i i think that that exploration was happening irrespective of what happened with the rabbi and it's and trying to wrap that up was more about like you know having a feel-good moment Mm -hmm. um but there was there was a moment where, um, you know, the community is trying to is is starting to resist a little bit the stringencies that are coming down from the rabbi, um, from the interloper rabbi Ruf David, and oh we'll we'll wait for our regular rabbi, our primary rabbi, to get better and he'll render his decision and we'll abide by what he wants to do. Right? They're referencing him sort of in defense, and interloper rabbi. Uh, in a really slimy move, um, goes 
over to the home of the original rabbi who is clearly like not mentally up to that interaction and tries to essentially like like get him on his side by selling him on his halachic reasoning um, in a way that's quite manipulative. Um, but that moment, so here's what's interesting about that moment to me. That is the first time that we, the audience, should you care to like pay attention to this, is hearing Rav David's source material mm-hmm. for the argument that the women's balcony is not an important investment or not the most important investment to be making with their fundraising dollars. Um, and he reads the section aloud to the original rabbi. So this is the audience's first chance to hear it. And what he reads aloud is a passage that says, when money is raised to rebuild a shul, but the community wants to do something else with it, something else that they are permitted to do must be something that is holier than building the shul, like buying a Sefer Torah. In order to make this argument, this rabbi has to be defining the woman's balcony as not the shul. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. Which is something that is never explicitly articulated in the movie, right? Like if you follow his halachic reasoning and you assume that, that he's, this was really his source material, he does not think that the women's section is part of the shul. Um, which I would say he is probably not alone in thinking among, you know, the Orthodox rabbinate in my experience. But... There is someone I know, um, I won't call her out by name because this is going to sound a tiny bit condescending, um, who did not grow up observant and her Hebrew is not great and her facility with religious texts is not great, but she has become uh, quite right-wing orthodox in her personal journey. She wrote a blog post about this movie when it came out a couple of years ago. And she essentially wrote the movie not seeing this guy as a villain. Hmm. And she basically said, Whoa. <laughs> I totally, I know, right? I totally understand why these women want their women's balcony. It is so hard when Jewish law clashes against what you really want. But he was just telling them what the law really is, right? And the fact that it is possible to be credulous even of this person in a movie. Mm-hmm. If, like, the experience that you have of learning about Jewish law is that Jewish law is what rabbis tell you it is without having the agency to experience those texts for yourself. Um, so my apologies, my apologies to this person for using her as an example, um, cause it's not really fair to her, but the fact that somebody could watch this movie and see that I was so startled by, and it made me feel like the next time I watched it, I had to pay quite close attention to what his source really was so that, I could really like know for myself that it's not just that like this really wasn't the halacha like he was reading he was reading this text in a way that denied any relevance to the women's section whatsoever that it that it was him reading his sense of importance or unimportance into the halacha and not the other way around. I did not pay attention to that. I did but I actually paid attention to it from another perspective. So before we started recording um Zahava and I were talking about how I read this film as this community is Sephardi. It's not clear, like, it wasn't clear to me. It may be clear to someone who knows this better, like, specifically where they're supposed to be from, but Sephardi. And I read um, Rav David as Ashkenazi. And I thought that there was a couple one or two places where it's specifically pointed to that, but I could totally be wrong. Um, And so as a result, I read it as basically a, a film about like Ashkenazi, Ashkenormativity, as I've heard people say before, basically the idea that of like Ashkenazi practice kind of overtaking um, Sephardi practice just because it's, it's seen as the norm. Um, and so I, I kind of saw this film as like a kind of push back at that, like some acknowledging that and pushing back at that. Um, and I'm trying to think like what made me so confident that Rav David was Ashkenazi, but I had a moment in, um, when, when he goes and visits their Rav, 
the rabbi of the community and learns with him and he he's learning Shulchan Aruch and I just remember thinking like that's so ironic because like that's the whole thing about the Shulchan Aruch is like there's literally an Ashkenazi and a Sephardi interpretation like right there um but I suppose that I may have just that 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 may be me bringing my read of the situation and may may not be the intention um I guess yeah I mean he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't look physically like the rest of them um which doesn't as we have spoken about before mean anything but um but I guess that's the thing, what I was kind of operating off of. I did get the, uh, when describing this film to friends, I, I did say that I felt like there was something, that it, it got to explore something that I know sort of anecdotally, which is that there's a, there seems to be in some communities a different relationship to halakha that Sephardi Orthodox communities have. Um, that it's just less like obsessive maybe. Um, and I thought that was really refreshing. Um, and I think that I read on to Reb David this sort of, oh no, he's like really machmir, really strict about certain things. And that to me reads as like a bunch of Ashkenazi ultra-Orthodox rabbis or something or modern Orthodox too. (laughs) I mean, it's interesting because there are Sephardic ultra-Orthodox Jews, right? Right. Um, which I, like, I didn't read this that way. I, I saw them all as Sephardic. Um, if anything, because there's a plot that we have not even talked about yes. that's about the dating life of one of the young women in the community, possibly the only young woman in the community. And there's a plot where she is dating one of Rev David's students and nobody ever implies that he's Ashkenaz and she's Sephardi, which I feel like would have been a dating issue that somebody would have mentioned if it I don't were know. true. Like, um, so I thought, like, I don't think that's a very strong piece of evidence, but I just, I don't think there's any explicit indication one way or another. Um, I don't particularly read him as Ashkenaz, but I, I do read him as... Um, I, I do read him as, I think this is related to the ivory tower versus on the ground thing I mentioned before, as disrespectful of family tradition as a source of halachic knowledge, which I think of as a quite Sephardic thing, is deep respect for family tradition as a source of halachic knowledge. So maybe in that sense, he's not embodying um, the same kind of Sephardic observance tradition that the rest of them are, regardless of what his actual ethnic background yeah. is sense that may be a little too in the weeds um on this but that's how i was experiencing it no i i like that interpretation i like it i also just like i feel like movies about jewish communities are like almost always about ashkenazi jewish communities so it was just like so nice to see something else i was just I love everything about this movie except for the rabbi's beard. <laughs> I think it's, and also like it's streaming on Netflix. It couldn't be easier to access. So I hope everyone will, um, will give it a shot. I will say something that Zahava said in the very beginning. Like, I don't really know how you would experience this movie if you aren't familiar with like Jewish ritual life. Like I kind of to tie it to our next segment, I have, it seems like it would be really weird um, and kind of confusing to watch it if you don't know a lot about Jewish life, but uh, give it a try anyways, because it's so funny and so good. Amen. So for our second topic, we wanted to talk about what happens when Jewish ritual life, especially sort of the more obscure Jewish rituals, um, get covered by mainstream media. Um, And this was inspired in large part by an All Things Considered story about an Eruv. Um, I really love the headline to this story, which is 
a fishing line encircles Manhattan, protecting sanctity of Sabbath. Um, just like the drama is, is rife there. Um, and I think we all sort of found some examples of ways that mainstream media has gotten it wrong or has just sort of been sometimes um, comically off, sometimes maybe a little bit more um, more veering into anti-Semitism or just exotification that makes us uncomfortable. So yeah, that's that that's the groundwork and I'm curious to hear what you guys thought of. This piece in particular was interesting to me because um, I was at work recently and uh, I was talking about um, the book Yiddish Feliz Union um, and one of my colleagues was saying that she loved that book and she was like remember there's this guy the string guy and he goes around and she was like describing a character who's I think responsible for the Aru and she was like did you know there really is one of those things in Brooklyn and I was like I don't mean to freak you out right now but we're in one of those things right now um (laughs) (laughs) She had read about an Aruv and she had heard that there was one in Brooklyn and that she assumed that was it. Um, and so it, it was that had happened. And then this story came out that was like kind of explaining an Aruv and it got such weird reactions that I um that I just thought like oh sometimes like I mean whatever I part of me does feel like the Aruv is a particularly difficult one because it's so weird um even for someone who's like very familiar with it it's not like something that I it's not like if you explain it enough it makes sense it's like the idea that like sometimes you're in a private domain and sometimes you're in a public domain and you can tell you're in a public domain because there's a fishing wire going around it or there's 600,000 people who regularly go like it's just like okay this is never gonna like actually make sense to people because it doesn't really make sense that's not really the point of it um but it just did make me think a lot about how difficult it is to explain Jewish ritual in a way that doesn't make it seem like wacky in a embarrassing way. I do this all the time. Like I'm, mm-hmm. I'm the office Jew who's happy to explain weird Jewish ritual. Um, unsurprisingly, <laughs> I think. Um, and so I have a coworker who sent me a very similar article that was like on mental floss a couple of years ago that was like, did you know that there's fishing line around the island of Manhattan? And he sent me this article. He's like, is this fake news? And I'm like, nope, it's a real thing. And also, why just Manhattan? Like, there are dozens of them in New Jersey. (laughs) Like, this is not... And so, I mean, my coworkers know all kinds of random stuff about Judaism and about Orthodox practice and the time that like they had already heard about Eruv. And then I was explaining to them about um, the practice that many people have of not using an umbrella outside on Shabbat because it's like building a tent. And then one of my coworkers was like, but what if, and I'm like, Oh God, (laughs) what if you hook your umbrella (laughs) over the fishing line and use it as a zip line? And I'm like, you could be, a rabbi in the Talmud, because this is how the Talmud works. You're crazy. What yeah. if is the development of Jewish law? Um, so what gets me about this article, though, and about articles like this, is that they are not about news. Like, that's what I don't get about it. It's like, this is a news article that's like, this thing that has existed for years is a thing you may not be aware of. <laughs> Yes. And then, like, let's make it seem kind of, like, like right. dramatic. Like, it means no carrying house keys outside. You can't even push a baby stroller. And when a rabbi needs to fix it, he's up there in a cherry picker. Picture a rabbi in a cherry picker. <laughs> and it's just like, that... <laughs> Judaism, isn't it nuts? <laughs> like, that's this article. 
And I think what makes me uncomfortable about that in a way that I am not uncomfortable personally explaining things about Judaism that I know are going to sound nuts is that this feels like non-Jews explaining Judaism to other non-Jews. Right. And then it gets picked up by a lot of Jews to be like, this is so weird. Why, why does this story exist? Yeah. I used to work for myjewishlearning.com and, um, so we did a lot of explaining of Jewish practice, but it was assumed that most of our audience was Jewish. Now, who knows? Maybe we were wrong, but like it felt it was Jews explaining Judaism to other people. And yeah, it felt a little bit more respectful than I think these articles often feel um, and I mean, I agree that it's not news, but it's like, there's all kinds of things in mainstream media. That's like not really news. My favorite of which is like one time there was a front page article in the New York times about how hugging hello is a thing. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, uh, yeah, that is not news. Like... <laughs> <laughs> what? Uh, I my joke that I told for many years after that article ran was like the next day on the front page there's gonna have an article that's called Sex. People really like it. Um because it's just like yeah. I think part of the the issue with these articles is often that they are like people who don't really understand them explaining them to other people, which kind of comes to something that I think we all have an opportunity to experience at one or another point in our life which is basically like when you read a newspaper article about something that you know a lot about and you are thus able to be like oh this is very wrong (laughs) or like mostly right but they got some crucial things wrong like when you know a lot about the topic and then you read a newspaper article about it you're almost always able to pick up on something that they misunderstood or misquoted or whatever um and that's just a useful thing to know because whenever you're reading the newspaper 99 percent of the time you're reading about things that you don't know that much about but if you did know that much about them you would likely be able to pick up on the one or two things that are you know not really accurate um in the article um But this is kind of separate from that. It's less that it's not accurate and it's more just kind of like the tone that it casts about Jewish practice is so kind of other and weird. And that is, (laughs) I mean, whatever, this is not necessarily NPR's job, but it's like, that's not helpful, NPR. You're not like... You're, you're making it difficult for people who are trying to be, like, responsible American citizens when you publish something like this. Like, not because it's not true, but because you make it seem silly when it's like, I mean, is it any sillier than going to confession? Well, so I feel like I found an example of maybe not so obscure, but somewhat obscure Jewish practice covered in mainstream media in what I thought was like a very respectful and um, appropriate way. Um, So I shared this link, but uh, there's an article, this is from 1986. So 1986, New York Times, um, uh, um, a journalist by the name of Joseph Giovanni writes, in Hasidic homes, ritual shapes design. And he is basically going into the homes of three different Lubavitch families in Crown Heights and talking about the designs of their apartments, the different choices that they made and how Kashrut and their Shabbat practice informed the design of their homes. So what I, I liked a lot of things about it, I, what I really liked was that in contrast to the fishing line drama, this fits within like, no, we're, the, the point of this article and probably many others by Joseph Giovanni is to talk about how people design their New York apartments. 
and he has like a particular approach that he's bringing to also explaining a little bit of Jewish ritual. Um, and yeah, I just thought like, oh, what a great story about design that is also like educating a little bit about Jewish practice and really using a lot of the words of Jews themselves, Jews who like observe these practices, um, talking about their double kitchen and their Passover kitchen and why it might be important that um, almost all of the beds have a trundle underneath because they want to be able to have a lot of friends over for Shabbat. So I just found it to be a really charming article that I'm happy to share with everybody. Yeah, I'm really excited to read it. I think that your point that this is probably a reporter that writes a lot about the design of, you know, homes in New York. Right. And this was one subset of that. Right. Makes it feel the thing that's worthy of interest is design and the things that influence design, not how curious Judaism is. And I think that's really the difference because that sounds really interesting and like if you are somebody who are interested in design, then yeah, like expand that interest to understand all of the things that you might not consider that could influence people's lived experience of design. But like the articles like this NPR air of peace seem to present Judaism as like worthy of your curiosity just because. Right. Um, and I think some of it to me is like, it's not like respectful, disrespectful so much as it's like, I'm not an exhibit, you know, and that's how it makes me feel a little bit. And it, what I think is actually an interesting contrast is um, the super famous, at least among Jews, Daily Show article, Daily Show segment, um, like classic John Stewart Daily Show, Wyatt Cenac, um does a piece on an Arab and about this community that doesn't want an Arab to go up in their neighborhood because too many observant Jews will move in and it's a bit about like exposing the hypocrisy there. Um, but that piece, the quote unquote buffoon, usually the daily show is making a buffoon out of somebody in an interview <laughs> piece. Right. And often it's they're interviewing somebody who themselves is going to look like a doofus. The way that piece is set up is that the interviewer is sort of being willfully obtuse. This is explaining the joke and making it super unfunny by explaining the joke. It is very funny. Um, but the interviewer is making himself willfully obtuse while like right. the rabbi tries to explain the concept of Erev. And he's like, oh, so when you're in the Erev, you don't have to observe Jewish law. Can I have this right. Erev hat and then eat a cheeseburger? <laughs> and like, and it's just like, it's funny because he's the doofus, right? Like, and it does it doesn't feel like the Judaism is the doofus, which is why, like, everyone I know that both watches TV and needs an Arab in their life has seen this segment. I, I'm trying to think of, like, other kinds of things that I feel like this, I would expect there to be an article similar to this. So one is, um, is Sukkot. Like, I feel like a sukkah is probably a good opportunity to write a kind of like explainer that is takes this whole holiday seriously um and yeah I'm just not sure that I often actually see those in a way that is useful although I will say that one time I um if you have, as I have, had occasion to fly on Sukkot with your lulav and etrog, you may have wondered, like, how is this going to go with airport security? And every year, TSA issues a statement that's basically like, it's fine to travel with your lulav and etrog. There's nothing dangerous about it. Mm. And I really... I have like printed that and brought it with me on a plane <laughs> just to be like, if anyone asks, this palm frond is not dangerous. Um, and I feel like that's just a very, I feel like it is a, it, it usually the, the paragraph says something like, you know, it's, a, it's involved in the observance of the holiday of Sukkoth or whatever. And I just like, I appreciate that it's like, oh, some people doing a thing that they enjoy doing. Nothing to see here. 
Um, (laughs) I don't know. I, I like that. And I think it's a, it's a graceful way of dealing with, with an issue that they understand is likely to come up. Well, so I feel like I also found a pretty egregious version of this, which is um, an article from Thrillist uh, that's headlined something about kosher sex, but essentially just becomes this story about, I don't know, like dating, marriage, sex practices that some Jewish couples have. And it felt so icky and... um, I don't know, like, I'm not, the tone that this author was trying to get across, I just really didn't like. Um, So I would be way more interested in a story about the TSA and how they come up with their Lulav and Etrog, um, like, press releases each year than another story about Shomer Nagia, Nida, um, you know, bans on premarital sex. I also find those things pretty, to be particularly irritating because it's like you only know what people tell you they're doing. People may not feel comfortable being public about the things that they like don't necessarily believe are so much a thing or haven't been doing or have been doing, but um, that, you know, like they're not going to just like go to a reporter and talk about it. Um, and where, where, like with Aruv or with all kinds of other mitzvot, like people are much more likely to be like, oh yeah, I do this and be being truthful than this stuff where I think that like, yeah, I mean, there's just a wide variety of Jewish practices around these things. And it's, it's irritating to me. I mean, it's funny how much I think this, this conversation links to our conversation about the women's balcony, because I think that like one thing that you never really get in these articles is a sense of the like spectrum of Jewish law that like an article about an Aruv is probably not going to go deeply into like the people who don't hold by the Aruv and the people who hold by this Aruv, but not that Aruv or whatever, you know, like it's not going to go into that, but that's really how the Jewish community works that like for everything that is sacred to someone, someone else thinks that it's not enough or way too much. And yeah, I mean, I feel like these articles, they're just, they're not, they're not designed to do that. They always just want to be like, Judaism says you should do blah, blah, blah. And that's just not how like Jewish law works most of the time. Can I just also, one of my linguistic pet peeves about all articles about Jewish practice um, in the mainstream media is the use of the words tradition and custom. Yes. Because within Judaism, there are things that are traditions and customs, what is usually called minhag in Hebrew. And there are things that are matters of law or commandments. And the thing is, it is like unseemly if you're writing in some mainstream publication, like, I don't know, meaning like religion is all tradition and custom, right? And it all gets sort of flattened. Right. So in the same way, when Tevya says that wearing these fringes on his garments is tradition, no, it's not. It's a biblical commandment. <laughs> like <laughs> the, <laughs> it's like, Jews do not have a tradition of Erev. They have an entire tractate of Talmud about Erev. Actually, to be fair, the NPR um, story does actually note that. Um, but like, there's a certain flattening of Jewish practice. Tamar, in the way that you're describing, like Jews do this, but also like all Jewish practice is like equally like a quaint traditional relic of the past, and also equally important or unimportant. Right. Um, in a way that's just like incorrect on a lot of levels. Well, I think people assume that it's much more so that like it's a legal system. So it's more similar to the American legal system where it's like something is legal or it's illegal. And there's not like interpretation. There's not a formal system of like, well, in this town, people really are fine with this thing or whatever. Like that's not really 
recorded <laughs> so people don't expect it to be a thing but it is well in short thank you npr for your attentions but maybe no thank you and everybody check out giovanni's piece because it's just yes lovely. i would actually like love to read like a long form piece about like relig- different religious people of different religions and how they would want a house designed for to like meet their religious needs that would be cool because that is cool i remember someone shared a um a real estate video for a property in the old city sometime this year and it was a property that had its own mikvah (laughs) and um and i was just like wow that is incredible and also like there's just a very small market for people who are like have that specific need i mean many of them live in the old city so like i mean obviously you're only talking to these specific people already but it was fascinating wow all right should we go on to our endorsements before we go on to our personal mikvahs (laughs) sure Mimi, what do you have to endorse? My grandmother-in-law, my husband's grandmother, has been weeding through her books lately, um, which has resulted in every visit to her, we come home with just handfuls of books. Um, Many of them are out of print, but I want to recommend three of them that I actually found for decent prices online if people are interested or available in your local library. Um, So one is called A Thousand and One Yiddish Proverbs. It's um, edited by a guy named Fred Kogos. And I can't tell any rhyme or reason to these Yiddish proverbs, but they are simply delightful. Um, They often come with some just sweet little um, illustrations and... It's just, it's, it's a light read that's just, you open it up and find something hilarious or poignant or just very clever. Um, so that is, like I said, that all of these books are out of print. So 101, 1001 Yiddish Proverbs. The second is the Complete Dictionary of English and Hebrew First Names. It's by a guy named Alfred Kolach. I think he wrote this book because he didn't like his own first name, Um, but it is, when they say complete, he really (laughs) just goes every possible version of um, not just Jewish names, but English names too, and it's it's a delight to go through, Um, whether you're searching for your own name or a name to give somebody or just like want to read some, I don't know, just it's sweet. And then the third book, and this one actually is still in print, is called A Guide to Jewish Religious Practice. Um, It was written by Rabbi Isaac Klein and it's from the Jewish Theological Seminary Press. We've really enjoyed this book, just like going through different holidays and different life cycle events. Um, Sometimes it's nice if you're not totally sure what is this, like what is this Omer or how exactly am I supposed to hang this mezuzah? Um, If you've ever like searched for that online, um, you're going to get a lot of like Chabad websites or Aisha Torah websites or just a lot of crap out there and I've really enjoyed this is like the guide to conservative Judaism but it's nice to have a physical book to check back in with um when I mean I know that there are like many like Sepharim that you can check back at but for me it's helpful to have this all in like one encyclopedia so Thank you very much to Bubby Ruth um, for these great new additions to my library. Highly recommend all of them, and I'll include some links. Yeah. 
That sounds so good. I actually think we own a copy of that book, so I got it. Actually, crack it open. All right, Sahava, what about you? Tandy. So, um, two endorsements from me. One is a brand new browser extension um, from the folks at Safaria. So, Safaria is um, a great Jewish learning website that I have mentioned in the past. Um, and they have a fun new application of their library where um, if you search for Safaria Torah Taps, um, there's an extension either for Chrome or Firefox, and they can set it up. You can set it up so that whenever you open a new tab, before you go to an actual URL, the default is it will just bring up a chunk of Jewish text, a sort of a miscellaneous section from the Safari library. It could be uh, like a biblical text or a Talmudic text or a later text. Um, and there's a little heading across the top of it. So you bring up a text and it'll be like food or idolatry or belief in God, <laughs> whatever the topic is that you happen to be diving into the middle of. Um, also, I love that whoever built this had the savvy um, regarding how people use the internet that you can have it not apply to incognito windows or private mode windows. So depending on how you use your internet, if there is a section of your internet usage that you don't think should mix with your Torah learning, it doesn't need to. Um, so I, I think it's a great little thing. That's and amazing. it's like, a, you know, just a way to have like pops of Torah learning um, in, in your life experience that you might not have encountered otherwise. So I thought that was really cool. Um, awesome. and the other thing I want to endorse, so several months back, um, I endorsed the country song, my church, which is about, uh, how listening to country music in your car can be a spiritual experience. Um, as a companion endorsement, um, another country song that I've been listening to recently in a similar vein is about how going to the beach can be a spiritual experience. It's called Saltwater Gospel. And it's about, and it's by the Eli Young Band. Um, and it's, you can have your church, but I see God in nature and I experience it by going to the ocean and sticking my feet in the water and communing with God that way. Um, and it's a really fun song. And I like that this is a current strain that I'm encountering in country music. So, all about saltwater gospel. That sounds so good. I'm excited to listen to that. It sounds delightful. I have like just a little fun, interesting factoid and then an endorsement. So um, I recently went on vacation to Barcelona for several days with my partner and we had a really great time. And we went on a walking tour of the Spanish Civil War, which I have to be honest and say that like, before taking this tour, I knew that there had been a Spanish Civil War, and I knew that there was a painting called Guernica about it, and that was, like, everything I knew about the Spanish Civil War. Um, and now I know a lot about the Spanish Civil War. And one of the things that I learned is that um, because it was a fight of anarchists against fascists, um, there were a lot of people from around the world who volunteered to come to Spain and fight for against the fascists. Um, it was in the mid thirties. So this was something that was on the minds of lots of people. And so people from all over the world came to fight the fascists, including um, thousands of Americans. There was an Abraham Lincoln brigade. There were people from, um, many, many different countries. And one in every four of all of the volunteers who came to fight in the Spanish Civil War were Jewish. There was a whole Yiddish-speaking brigade. Um, and the person who was giving the tour um, was an Irish woman, and she was saying, like, she thought that it was because Jews in Europe at the time were, like, reading the writing on the wall, and they wanted to be a part of a force that was fighting fascism, um, which totally makes sense to me. Um, and it was just really cool to, um, to hear that and know that, I guess. I think a lot of the narrative around Jews... Um, in Europe 
before World War II is basically that they were kind of went like lambs to the slaughter and that they didn't see it coming and they weren't trying to fight against it. And it was cool to hear a story of like people who, you know, went very far from home to fight against fascists, I, you know, because that was something that was important to them. So that was cool. But my endorsement um, is for a poem. Um, in the springtime, I always like feel like I need poetry. Um, and so I wanted to share a poem called A Child is Something Else Again by Yehuda Amichai, which, um, translated by Chana Bloch. A child is something else again, wakes up in the afternoon and in an instant he's full of words. In an instant he's humming, in an instant warm, instant light, instant darkness. A child is Job, they've already placed their bets on him, but he doesn't know it. He scratches his body for pleasure, nothing hurts yet. They're training him to be a polite Job, to say thank you when the Lord has given, to say you're welcome when the Lord has taken away. A child is vengeance. A child is a missile into the coming generations. I launched him. I'm still trembling. A child is something else again, on a rainy spring day, glimpsing the Garden of Eden through the fence, kissing him in his sleep, hearing footsteps in the wet pine needles. A child delivers you from death. Child, garden, rain, fate. Um, I just, I love that poem, and uh, it's a good poem to read when you are thinking about children or springtime. Yeah. Thanks for listening. If you have a minute, it would be amazing if you could leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. Um, you could also email us and let us know what you'd like us to discuss on a future episode. You can leave a comment on a post on our Facebook page. You can find us on Facebook by searching for Jewish Public Media, or you can go to our website, jpmedia.co, and choose Talking and Shul from the list of podcasts. Um, it would be amazing if you could donate to Jewish Publish Media, Public Media. We are we finally have a, an editor working on our episodes, and in order to keep the episodes coming, we need to pay the editor. So please make a donation so that we can do that. Thank you so much, Mimi and Zahava. Thank you. Great to be with you guys. Thanks, guys. Hopefully we'll talk to you all next month. <laughs> <laughs>